Real talk. Let's talk about it. Good morning. We are glad that you are here today. Hey, a couple things. I would ask you right now to get out your phone because I want to tell you two dates that you need to know about and you can put in your notes or you can go ahead and just put in your calendar. How many of you are parents, grandparents, no parents or grandparents, right? That takes about everybody, right? So March the 21st, March the 21st is a relevant parenting conference right here from nine until noon. Dave DiDonato is going to be leading that. It's going to be great. He's got a great team and you need to be a part of that. That is March the 21st. It's a Saturday from nine to noon. Got it? March 21st. Second thing is, it's a little ways out, but we want to tell you about it. Our next, our next celebration weekend is May 30 and 31. May 30, 31. I want you to know that because those celebration weekends are fantastic. We just had one last week. So on Saturday, we come, all our campuses come together, great time to meet uh, people on other campuses. And then on Sunday, we come, and we have, I think we had 24 or 5, uh, 8 baby d- uh, dedications. Just so cool to pray for the, for the young couples in our church. Uh, we had baptisms. And, you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes in the Christian life, man, I need to hear the life-transforming stories of what God is doing in the lives of people. And so we get to hear those stories. There were some amazing stories last time uh, before people were baptized. So we want you to be a part of that. That's a fantastic opportunity for us to come together and just celebrate what God is doing in our lives. All right, you got those dates? March 21 and May 30 and 31. Because it drives me absolutely crazy when after the fact people say, I didn't know we were having that. So now you know, right? You guys good? Good. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our day. Thank you for our time together. We pray, Father, that you would be with us as we look at your word. Teach us, Lord, as only you can do. Break through areas of our heart that might be hardened. Soften them. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, just be reminded today that we can't hide from you. And we pray that you would be the one who speaks to each one of us. I have nothing to say unless it comes from your word, Lord. So teach us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so this past Sunday, week ago today, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, yeah, you can do that. 31 to 20. I think Tunch uh, predicted 30. Four to 28, something like that. So he wasn't too far off, actually. Um, our our non, non-scientific poll last time, uh, I was thinking after the game, most of the people at our church, pretty happy about that, right? Uh, the Kansas City won, 31 to 20. If you watched the game, you were one of 102 million viewers. that make you feel special? 102 million viewers watched the game. And so the next day, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of stuff on the sports apps and, and, and news feeds regarding the game. But most of the, the buzz was not around what happened in the first quarter or second quarter or third quarter or fourth quarter. 
Most of the buzz was what happened when? Halftime. You guys read the same stuff I read, didn't you? While you were getting your chips and dip, 103 million people tuned in to watch the halftime show. And man, social media was buzzing about what had taken place on all spectrums. One guy named Brian Frost wrote this, am I the only one who was troubled by all the twerking, grinding, and pole dancing in the Super Bowl halftime show? Forgive me if I was a bit sensitive to it after watching uh, Ariana Grande's performance at the Grammys last week. Quite awkward when you're trying to watch with your children and in-laws. Another guy, Robert Kane, wrote, in spite of all the plaudits pouring in about the fabulous Super Bowl halftime show, I found it more appropriate to a strip club than primetime TV. 12 minutes of two... Uh, 12 minutes of two half-naked women, hip gyrating, pelvic thrusting, pole dancing, and otherwise cavorting on the stage is not my idea of proper entertainment for families watching a football game with their children. The one... <clears throat> not so fast, hang on. <laughs> the one word that echoed as I read several articles and posts regarding the game... Uh, it was raunchy. Costumes left little to the imagination. The stripper pole was certainly not family entertainment. And the close-up camera shots of areas that Adam and Eve covered long ago were strategically taken to keep the men in the room. The halftime show was just a sex-charged choreography. But then the NFL does that every weekend, right? With the cheerleaders. It was more than just a halftime show. It was really a statement about our culture. And here's what one person said. The show's so-called raunchiness pales in their, in their right. The show's so-called raunchiness pales in comparison to what the overwhelming abundance of internet porn, and yes, your Netflix subscription, makes available at the tips of your fingertips. Consider that before you throw a tantrum or applaud regarding the Super Bowl. We live in some confusing times, don't we? On one hand, you got the Me Too movement, you got the sickness of sex trafficking, and every other day on the sports page, another athlete has been charged with sexual or domestic abuse. That's on one hand. And then on the other hand, you have, to, you have a 50-year-old performer and her compadre, scantily dressed, dancing on a stripper pole in front of 103 million people. One woman wrote in response to a New York Times op-ed... She wrote this, how does one reconcile the halftime show with the Me Too movement? To be sure, the technical aspects and the performances were first rate, but keeping in mind that this is a show watched by all ages and backgrounds, the dance move, the costumes were more befitting a strip club minus the stripping 
or a prelude to a soft porn video. The show used images meant to excite and seduce. Yet the Me Too movement is all about not objectifying women, not viewing them through the lens of sex, and using sex to manipulate, dominate, and take advantage. I was not offended by the show, she says, just sad and dismayed. But in case you're sad and dismayed, I just got to tell you this. I uh, went for my uh, annual checkup, and I had to get some shots before taking a trip coming up. And uh, I was sitting in the waiting room, and one of those morning TV shows were on. I don't know what the name of it was. One of those shows was on. And I don't know what the name of it was, but uh, Jenna uh, Bush, somebody, Harper, somebody, uh, was, was one of the people. And, and they were going on and on and on about the halftime show, how great it was. And I just wanted you to know that they made the point that before they went out, Jennifer Lopez gathered all the dancers around and they had a prayer before they went out. So that should make you feel a lot better about that, right? Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. I know uh, our dealing with sexuality is uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it's good. If it's uncomfortable for you, it's just good you didn't live in 55 AD in the Roman Empire and you didn't live in Corinth. Having sex with one of the over 1,000 Temple prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite was considered a religious experience. There were other prostitutes and open acts that were going on in the streets that you couldn't hide from your children as you went with them to the market for a loaf of bread. Immorality was so pervasive in Corinth that the word Corinth became a verb to Corinthicize, meant to participate in immorality. And... And the culture seeped into the church. Paul had spent 18 months founding the church in Corinthians. He left. He's now on his third missionary journey. He's in Ephesus, and a group from Corinth go to Ephesus and say, Paul, you wouldn't believe what's going on in this church that you invested a year and a half in. You wouldn't believe it. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, And that's bad enough, but the leaders, Paul, the leaders aren't doing one blasted thing about it. Paul, can you believe that? There there are those who are believers, they're still believers, they say they're believers, but they're still sleeping with those temple prostitutes claiming it to be a religious experience. Paul, I can't believe this, Paul, you won't believe this, but there are people who equate uh, having sex to eating. It's just a biological function that, that you just need to satisfy. Paul says, we've got to deal with it. So he doesn't beat around a bush. He hits it head on. This passage we're going to look at today is chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. Last time we talked about that guy who was having sex with his stepmom and how the people weren't doing anything about it and how you can keep your head in the sand if you want and not deal with things around you as parents. It's a dangerous thing to do. Next time, we're going to talk about sexuality and marriage. Paul hits that hard 
uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 today, we see this passage, just a few verses, 12 through 20. It's an inductive passage. A lot of times, or it's rather, it's a, it, it is a, um, sometimes Paul does a deductive passage where he says, here's the, here's what I want to talk about, and I'll develop it. In this passage, Paul develops it, and then boom, he hits the main point at the end. So let's just start at the end where Paul's main point is. Look at chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, don't you know, or do you not know? He's asking a rhetorical question to make a strong point. Of course you know. Surely you know. Certainly you know. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You have been what? You've been bought with a price, so glorify God and your body. Paul said, don't you get it, Corinthians? You are not your own. Your body is the temple of the living God. In the Old Testament, there was a physical temple where God dwelt in, in, in the nation of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness. God was a, a cloud uh, by day and fire by night, and, and he dwelt over the temple. In the Old Testament, it was a physical temple, but don't you get it? Now, God lives within you. God lives within you. In this passage today, we're going to see that Paul is speaking about sex in a positive way. And unfortunately, we have allowed our culture to take the lead. The church should always take the lead, right? But we don't want to talk about these things. It makes people uncomfortable. The church should always take the lead. And when the church takes the lead, we're out in front of the issue. But when the culture takes the lead, we always have to respond. And so the church always responds to sex in a negative way. What do we say? Don't. Stop it. Quick. Because we're responding to the saturation of the culture. But what we want to see today in this passage and through this series is God says yes to sex. It's his idea. He made men and women with all the parts necessary for a one flesh relationship. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Look at verse 25. The man and the wife were both naked and felt no shame, completely vulnerable, completely open to each other. And before sin entered, they felt no shame. We're going to see sex is, is not just a physical act. It is an emotional and physical experience of openness and vulnerability. And in marriage, in this, in this pleasurable proclamation, we say, I am reconsummating myself to you. I would marry you all over again tomorrow if I could. I am giving myself to you, and I'm giving myself to you because God has given us this great gift. God says yes to sex in marriage between a man and a woman. Lauren Winter is a professor at Duke. She was single. She's now married. Back in 2006, she wrote a book called um, Real Sex, The Naked Truth About Chastity. And she said she was always irritated when she heard about uh, sex as a single because 
the conversation always went back to marriage. And she said there should be something just to singles about sex. And so she started writing the book. Listen to what she says. But as I wrote, I realized there, that there was a good reason that the Christian conversations about sex often circle back to marriage. What sits at the center of the Christian sexual ethics is not a negative view of sex. Did you hear that? Young people, did you hear that? what, What is basic to our Christian sexual ethic is not negative. The Christian vision is not, at its most concise, merely no sex before marriage. Rather, the heart of the Christian story about sex is a vigorously positive statement. Sex was created for marriage. Now listen to what she says. Without the robust account of the Christian vision of sex within marriage, the Christian insistence that unmarried folks refrain from sex just doesn't make sense. I want to read that again. That's good stuff. Without... Parents, grandparents, kids, you guys hear this? Without a robust account of the Christian vision of sex within marriage, the Christian insistence that unmarried folks refrain from sex just doesn't make sense. That's what Scripture says. Scripture gives us a vigorously positive statement about sex. Sex was created for marriage. It's God's idea. And our bodies, with all the sexual parts and desires, our bodies as believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives within us. Think of a believer. This is a truth that blows your mind. As a believer, you house the spirit of the living God. And that's a privilege that doesn't come cheap. Paul says you were bought with a price. You were in slavery to all sins, not just sexual sin. You were in slavery to sins, and Jesus came, God sent his son, to die for you on a cross, to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. You have been bought with a price. You now belong to the king. Young people, hear this. You now have this privileged position. You belong to the king. I don't know what you're going to encounter in your life. I don't know who's going to try to pressure you to do something, but I want you to know this. When you're a believer, the most powerful man in the room is Jesus because he lives within your heart. You don't have to give in when you're a son or daughter to the king, you don't have to cheapen yourself by watching someone who's so cheap on a screen. Wherever you go, you're taking God with you, and so you may think you can hide your habits, but as a believer, the Holy Spirit is right there with you. And so Paul says, man, glorify God with your body. The word, uh, the word uh, glorify is a great, a great Hebrew word. It was likened to a scale. So you have this scale, and if you put something heavy on one side of the scale, obviously that part went down, right? That was glory. That was the Hebrew word for glory. It meant weight, to be heavy, to be weighty. And if it was weighty, it had intrinsic value. 
God has intrinsic value. He is worthy. Later on, the, the light and brilliance was added to the word uh, uh, glory. And so in, in, in the Bible, when you think of the word glory, you have this brilliance of God and the fact that he is worthy. And so when Paul says, make God worthy in your body, make him brilliant. Demonstrate his worth because he lives within you. So, what's that mean? Well, it means you never have to wear anything that would attract sexual attention. You don't have to do that because you're a child of the king. You don't have to look at every website to figure out how you should look. You don't have to let culture define your personhood because you're a son or daughter of the king. You don't have to be pressured into looking at anything. You don't have to be pressured into doing anything. See, God says, man, I love you. I, ho I house myself in you. you. You're a son or daughter of the king. I'm right there with you. Wherever you go, there I am. Don't, don't, don't dilute my presence with you with perversion or pornography. Honor God with your body. Some of you or many of you have been going through this 2020 challenge, right? You guys hanging in there as we go through Leviticus? Kind of tough sledding through Leviticus, isn't it? So in Leviticus, as you read all the laws and all that stuff, the big point of Leviticus, you're looking, for, you're looking for transferable principles, and the big point of Leviticus is 49 times over in Leviticus, God says, I am the Lord your God. 49 times. I am the Lord your God. I took you out of slavery. I am the Lord your God. I will deliver you from the land of, of slavery and the land of sin. I am the Lord your God. I will forgive you for your past. I will give you power for the present. I will give you great promise for the future because I am the Lord your God. That's kind of what Paul's saying here, right? Glorify God with your body. He is the Lord your God. He lives within you. Now, the Corinthians didn't want to hear that. And uh, they wanted to take theology or even cultural stuff, and they wanted to twist it around so they could do what they wanted to do. So in uh, verses 12 through 18, there are three sayings that were going around in the Corinthian church, and they, the believers were using these sayings to rationalize anything they wanted to do. Sometimes the sayings had some truth to them. But when you take truth to the extreme and rationalize it, uh, it becomes dangerous, right? So let's look at these three statements that the Corinthians were using. So Paul, now he's in Ephesus. The people come and say, Paul, they're, everyone in Corinth, they're saying these things. And the first one was, they're saying, Paul, all things are lawful. Well, that's true, right? 
As a believer, we have Christian liberty. Paul will write in Colossians chapter 2 that don't, don't, don't allow people to, to block you in with legalism. We have Christian liberty. We have a lot of things that we're able to do. But Paul says don't twist that then to have sex with anyone you want to have sex with. Paul says all things are lawful, that's true, but sleeping with the temple prostitute, that's not helpful. All things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. So let's just think about that a little bit. As you're reading Scripture, have you seen any biblical law against going to a movie, watching a show on Netflix or Hulu or YouTube or Instagram? Anyone seen that in Scripture? Right? You can do all those things. But you have to ask yourself, is that movie, that YouTube video, is that beneficial? Does that really further my walk with Christ? Are those the things I want to see or hear or share or like? As a young woman, as a believer, you have the freedom to post any picture you want to on Instagram, right? Well, your parents have something to say about that, I hope. Is it really beneficial to put a pic on Instagram of yourself in a scanty bathing suit? Is that beneficial for all the young men who are going to view it, or older men? Is it really worth the likes you're going to get? Parents, I hope you're viewing your kids' Instagram and helping them think through this Christian thought. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And then Paul repeats, all things are lawful, but then he says, I will not be dominated by anything. I won't be controlled. I, I won't be influenced by. I won't be led by anything other than Jesus. I'm not going to be addicted to anything. On your sermon notes, I have put um, a website you can check out. Uh, the website is fightthenewdrug.org. It is not a Christian website. It is a researched website regarding the dangers of porn. It talks about how porn affects the brain like a drug, how it affects sexual tastes, how it demands an ever-increasing dosage, how porn kills love among young men today. There is an increasing issue of sexual dysfunction because of porn viewing, how porn leaves consumers lonely, how porn fuels sex trafficking. I'm going to put this disclaimer. I've not read every article. You may not agree with everything that you read. You may not even like the way it's presented sometimes. But man, it's a place to start, isn't it? And parents, you better have a place to start. And men and women, because some dangerous stuff, it is impacting our lives in more ways than just checking out a screen for a few minutes. According to the 2016 Barna Research data, 
of 18 to 20-year-old Christians actively seek out porn. I know, not your kids, but all those other kids. According to True Research, 2012, 71% of teens hide their online behavior from parents. That's not surprising, is it? Just surprising it's only 71%. Now, used to, pornography was just a man's issue, but not anymore. One article uh, I read had cited a pornography site, and the pornography site's research said that now 30% of viewers of pornography are women. That's way up. 30%. Check this out. Shockingly, women were 108% more likely to search out porn where multiple partners, usually three or more, were engaging in sexual intercourse with a single willing partner. 108% more likely. Women were 72% more likely to search out sites regarding rough sex. You say, you know what, I, I get it, you know, but, but I'm a believer and I can always play the grace card, right? I'm secure and a little curious, but nothing can separate me from the love of God. I don't have to be a prude. I, I'm not actually having sex. It's kind of like, it's kind of like window shopping, Right? It's kind of like window shopping. So, Tunch and I, I have the site you can go check we, on this Fresh Faith podcast. Uh, we've done some stuff regarding biblical manhood. We hit this area pretty hard. And uh, so, so guys will come and say, you know what? I, I'm just there to, you know, it's just the beauty. The beauty of the woman's body. That's all I'm, you know, that's all I care about. Just the, the beauty and, and, and one guy told Tunch, this is my favorite Tunchism. Uh, one guy told Tunch, um, you know, um, it, there's no different than looking at this beautiful woman's body than, than looking at a car, right? Woman's body or a car. What's the difference? Tunch said, here's the difference. You can't have sex with the car. <laughs> Tunch, I thought that was funnier when I, when I first heard it. So, so don't give me that stuff. Oh, just appreciating God's creation. Absolutely a bunch of crud. (laughs) Young women. Young women. Is posting a, a backside shot of yourself worth the likes you're gonna get? just because everybody else is doing it. I know I want my faith to be relevant. I don't want to be prudish or legalistic. I can play the grace card. I can skate on the edge. God's going to forgive me. God's going to forgive me. Yeah, he'll forgive you. Yes. But Paul says there are places I don't cross the line. I'm not going to be dominated. I'm not going to be controlled, influenced, mastered by anything other than Jesus. 
One writer says, sad are the consequences of forgiven sin. The Corinthians like to throw another saying around. Look at verse 13. Paul, it's just a biological issue, man. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Uh, You know, when I'm hungry, I go eat a hamburger. When I have the urge for sex, I go find one of those temple prostitutes or any other willing person. It's just a biological function, Paul. I mean, God gave it to us, didn't he? I got this appetite. I got to satisfy. Well, Paul says, God will destroy both one and the other. So one day, our biological appetites aren't even going to exist. So you're right. One day, God's going to destroy them. But here's what Paul says. For now, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. Remember, he lives within you. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Yeah, God's going to destroy the body one day. He's going to destroy our biological appetites. Our body decays in the ground. But don't forget, there there is a resurrection body, right? God's going to raise it to life. So God does care about your body. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He lives within you. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make it members of a prostitute? Paul then uses the, the strongest Greek negative, meganoita. May it never be. Or, or do you not know, Paul says, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one in body with her, for it is written, the two will become one flesh. This is not just a biological act. This is a one flesh relationship. And in marriage, man, it is fantastic. It is great. It is mind-blowing. It is chandelier swinging, but it's never rough or manipulated or enslaved or kinky or perverted. It's a great gift of God. And this one flesh relationship, that's why you don't share it with anyone else. It is not just a physical oneness, but the one flesh relationship, it is an emotional oneness committed to exclusive feelings. It is a spiritual oneness committed together in your love for Jesus. It's a missional oneness going the same direction at the same time for the same reasons. And when you are in this thing as husband and wife, you're saying, man, we are in this together. We would do this again. We are reconsummating our love for each other physically, spiritually, emotionally, and missionally. We're headed the same way together because of God's grace. Look at verse 18. Every other sin a person commits, Paul says, is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Uh, This part of the passage is just much debated. Honestly, we don't know exactly what Paul is saying here. Some people say, well, he's talking about the... the, um, the seriousness of sexual sin, certainly talking about the seriousness of sexual sin, but, but Paul's saying, you know, that the, the sexual sin is worse than other sins. Well, Paul doesn't ever say that anywhere else. So there's not like one sin outside the body and one side sin inside the body. What most commentators will, will say is this is the third of one of 
the sayings that were going around um, Corinth. And the saying is basically this, uh, the body, anything done in the body just has no moral relevance. It, it really doesn't matter. You know, you, you just, inside or outside, whatever, whatever sexual sin you want, it's the body. It doesn't have any moral relevance. And so that argument would be made by those who held to Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, a heresy going on in the church that day. And Gnosticism said the body is evil, all body is evil, and the spirit is good. So it's just what I'm thinking inside. I can do anything with my body. It's just evil. But the spirit's good. By the way, Gnosticism is at, at base what's going on with all the uh, transgender argument, right? Because it doesn't matter if I'm born a boy. It's how I feel. It doesn't matter if I'm born a girl. The body doesn't matter. It's how I feel. That's Gnosticism at its base. Paul says the body does matter. Remember, you're going to be raised in this new body one day. And so Paul says in verse 18, very abruptly, if you're reading this, if, if it was being read in the Corinthian church for the first time or you're reading this, there's like no flow here. Just out of boom, Paul says what? In verse 18, flee sexual immorality. He's thinking back to Genesis chapter 39 when, when, when Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. He's thinking of 2 uh, Timothy 22 uh, when, when Paul says, flee youthful passions. And by the way, the word there is not like, like kind of resist it or you probably shouldn't do it. It is, it is a radical separation. Stop it. You got to get a handle on this. Don't do it anymore. If you got an addiction, be smart enough to go get help. If you got an issue, be smart enough to put the guards around yourself. Flee sexual immorality. Paul's clear. You just don't mess with this stuff. It's a great gift from God when you do it his way. It's damaging when you don't. So, rats don't like the smell of death. Anyone know that? Guys, just relax a little bit. I know this is a tough topic, but rats don't like the smell of death. If you didn't know that, you know it now. They don't like the smell of death. So this researcher named Jim Faust, he wondered if he could alter the instinct. So he sprayed female rats with a liquid that smelled like dead, rotting rats. And then he put virgin male rats in the same cage with these female rats that smelled like dead, rotting rats. You guys got the picture? What do you think happened? The drive for sex was so powerful that the male rat overcame his instinct to avoid the smell and the female rat smelling like death hit it off with the male rat. Here's a weird thing. He then took objects. So what happened? What happened? 
Huh? Okay. Someone, someone can explain that to me later. I don't know. I'm going on with my story. I, I, I don't even know what's going on, but dead rats. The female rats smell like a dead rat, right? They had, they had a relationship. And then he sprayed objects with that same liquid, and he put this male rat in this cage with just objects, and the male rat rather would, I'm all messed up now, would play, <laughs> would rather play with the objects that smelled like death than the objects that didn't. So here's what, he con- here's what one researcher concluded. Many porn consumers find themselves getting aroused by things that used to disgust them or things that they might have previously considered to be inappropriate or unethical. As individuals consume more extreme and dangerous acts of sex, they gradually begin to feel that those behaviors are more common and acceptable than they really are. So I know that this series is a little uncomfortable. I get it. But would you guys agree with me that the smell of death is in the air? The smell of death begins to feel normal after a while. So normal that when a performer dresses inappropriately, makes inappropriate movements, and there's inappropriate camera shots on a stripper pole at the halftime show of the Super Bowl, it's said it's one of the best Super Bowl shows ever. Joni Erickson taught it, said this, in the last few decades, though no one can say exactly how it happened, the unthinkable became tolerable, then acceptable, then legal, and now, God help us, applaudable. It's true, isn't it? We applaud the things we used to be embarrassed at. So when we deal with a sermon like this, um, usually it hit the guys pretty hard, right? Uh, the guys will always tell me, man, just talk to the women sometime. You got, you're just picking on me all the time. Bunch of whiners, bunch of guys that are whiners here. Uh, after a Father's Day, they'll say, oh, too hard, too hard. And Mother's Day, you just do softballs and stuff. So women, let me talk to you. 30% of you, are watching porn. You're leading your families just like your husbands are. And in many ways, you have more influence in what your young daughters are wearing than your husbands. You guys got to step it up. Because if we're going to be a church that really deals with the real issues you got to take the lead as well as your husband, right? <laughs> okay. So, Laura Ankrum, 
is going to come and preach it. Laura Ankrum is going to come and pray for our women as we pray for each other in this service. We prayed for the men last week. So, Laura, all yours. All right, ladies, I'd ask you to join me up here, up front. Um, come on up. We're going to bow before the Lord um, on our knees if you're able. And if you're not able to do that, you can stand. That's okay. We will help each other get up. I promise. You'll have to help me. And if this sermon has really hit home with any of you and you need someone to talk to, you call me. I will make time for you to sit down and talk about this, okay? But we're going to spend some time in prayer, kneeling before the Lord physically or in our hearts. So join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we've heard a lot today. Most of it we've known because, Lord, our culture calls good evil and calls evil good. It's all backwards. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that we've been influenced by that. Some of us, Lord, have compromised in the area of sexual sin. So we come before you today and ask your forgiveness for that. Lord, we've also tolerated sexual sin in our minds, in our homes, on our screens. And Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for that today. We are in a battle, Lord. And we need your help each and every day to keep our hearts and our minds and our souls pure. So help us by this, your Holy Spirit, Lord. And Lord, as I listen to this sermon, I am painfully aware that there are women here today who have experienced sexual abuse. And so, Lord, for these women, I pray for your healing. Mend their souls, Lord. Introduce them to your love, which is trustworthy. Your love is never evil. It is always trustworthy and good. And may they, their journeys in that love be beautiful journeys from this day forward. Lord, I pray for our single women. They're in a battle too. So Lord, I ask that you would help them to keep you at the center of their lives, to put personal holiness above pressure or above ridicule. Strengthen them to be bold in following you. And Lord, for us married ladies, pray that you would be with us as well. This has been very convicting. Lord, I ask that we would honor and glorify you in our marriages, both publicly and in private. 
nobody else might see what's behind closed doors, but you do. And we want to honor you in our marriages, Lord. And we want our spouses to honor you as well. So be with us, Lord. We need your help. And we need the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we ask for it in Jesus' name.